navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Hello in the datascape. I'm your host, Chris Presley. The cloud has been consistently automating away many of the B-list tasks of database management. There are several offerings on the market from Oracle's Autonomous DB to pass offerings from the three major cloud vendors such as Redshift and BigQuery. One of the newer up-and-coming vendors is Snowflake. These technologies are changing the job of the DBA and the capabilities of business. For some time, I've been very interested in Snowflake's cloud database, and I've invited Kent Graziano, Chief Technology Evangelist from Snowflake, to join us so we can learn a lot more about Snowflake's capabilities. Hey, Kent, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. I know these are strange times and a lot of us are, have very busy schedules. Why don't we start by helping the audience get to know you? Can you give us a quick overview of your career? Sure. I've been working in the data space for well over 30 years now. I actually started out of college doing Fortran programming and things like that and very quickly got into DBase and then in the late 80s got involved with Oracle and spent most of my career in the Oracle space as a data modeler, data architect, designer. In the mid-90s, I got introduced to the concepts of data warehousing and got to work with the father of data warehousing, Bill Inman, and Claudia Amhoff, another thought leader in that space, and co-authored my first book on data modeling and data warehouse design. And this kind of went from there. I've been a lead architect in government, public sector, K through 12, worked with telcos, I've worked with fintech. I've worked in quite a few of the different verticals over the years. Uh, healthcare was the most recent one before I came to Snowflake. I've been an independent consultant. I've been a team lead and manager for uh, enterprise data warehouse in a number of organizations and uh, got into speaking with the Rocky Mountain Oracle user group a long time ago, helped organize the very first training days there in Denver with the Rocky Mountain Oracle user group, kind of involved the Oracle Development Tools user group, ended up being on the board of directors of both of those organizations for uh, quite a few years. Eventually launched my own blog, the, the Data Warrior, and went independent for quite a while and then uh, ran into Snowflake and uh, got introduced to uh, the technology and got you know very excited about it. and four and a half, a little over four and a half years ago now, late 2015, I actually joined the company and became a, a member of the Snowflake organization when there was only about 100 people in the company. It's a really exciting first, well, actually second startup that I ever worked for. The first one was in the early 90s. It was an oil and gas software startup in Denver that eventually got bought by Oracle. Okay. Um, that's where I got my, I learned, got my chops on Oracle case and Oracle designer and uh, building out systems through automation and generation techniques. So I realized, I, I thought I'd never worked for a startup, then I realized, well, that one was actually a startup too, because I was employee number five there. <laughs> well, that's quite an impressive career, Kent. I'm impressed. That's great. So you also have a very interesting title. Could you give us a quick, uh, for those of us in the data space, a quick overview, like what does a chief technology evangelist do? Well, I do these sorts of things. I do podcasts <laughs> with people and I, I talk about Snowflake and it's a great role for me. It really brought together things that I really enjoyed doing throughout my career, speaking at the user groups, uh, writing, write, oh, I can't even say that right this morning, <laughs> writing white papers, producing presentations, doing workshops, and then of course, blogging 
and doing podcasts. And so I spend, I actually spend about half of my time talking to people about either Snowflake directly and what a game changer it is and how it's changing things. Like, as you mentioned, the role of the DBA and what that means to a DBA to have this type of service available. And the other part of my time I spend actually uh, speaking at industry events, often about things like in general, just cloud analytics and what can we do in the cloud, uh, data warehousing. Uh, as I said, I was primarily a, a data modeler, data architect, so I actually give a lot of talks on data modeling and uh, approaches to different kinds of data. And then the other half of my time, I spend as a strategic advisor with our customers and our prospects where they want to talk to someone who's been in the industry for a while, who's seen the sorts of things that I've seen, worked with the customers that I've worked with, and sometimes just to bounce ideas off of me to see we're thinking about moving to Snowflake and here's how we're thinking about doing this. Does this make sense? I get a lot of calls. I'm also an expert in Data Vault. And so mm. I get a lot of consultations on, hey, we're, we're thinking about as we move to the cloud, adopting the Data Vault methodology. Mm -hmm. Give us some advice on that. What are the best practices there? Is it a good idea for our organization to do that? And in what cases would we do that? And then organizations that are already doing Data Vault on their legacy platforms often want to talk to me about, well, how does that work on Snowflake? You know, what's the migration look like? Are there things we need to look out for there? So I've got a really good happy medium between doing uh, what I would think call the pure evangelist role of going on, just really talking about the product from a technical perspective to uh, technical audiences like yourself and your listeners and talking to prospects and customers alike to give them a little bit of guidance about uh, where they might go with what they're doing with their cloud data platforms. Great. I, I mean, that sounds like a great gig. Actually, you just dropped about four subjects that I just love to explore for an hour each one. Data Vault is something I've worked with as well and something I'm, I'm interested in, but uh, we better stick to the topic at hand. But one more before we get right into Snowflake, because it's just so relevant. How does a gentleman such as yourself, who kind of grew up in the conventional data on-prem Oracle world, what motivates you and, and how did you jump to the cloud age and the cloud databases? So yeah, like you said, I've been in the Oracle world for a long while. I was an Oracle ace. I was one of the first Oracle aces in the early 2000s and then eventually an Oracle ace director. And of all things, I got introduced to Snowflake at a big data meetup that was sponsored by the Rocky Mountain Oracle user group. And the title was something like Elastic Data Warehousing in the Cloud. And then said this new company, Snowflake, was going to talk about this. And I was just like, well, I, I got to go see what this is. And what I saw just blew me away. I mean, the potential of what they had built. It solved problems that I was literally in the middle of trying to solve for a client, <laughs> right? Things like at that point in time, you could have an account up and running in 24 hours, which was even then in 2015 was miraculous because I'd been working with a lot of the other Oracle Ace directors who were more DBAs who'd been trying to get some of Oracle's cloud services going. And they were telling me sometimes it was taking weeks and they were having to put in support tickets just to get configured. There was no real quick way to get configured. And these guys said, well, you, you go sign up and within 24 hours, you'll have an account. And now today it's like 15 minutes, right? Back mm -hmm. then it was kind of manual and now, it, now it's all completely automated. I was like, okay, well, that's step one. The customer I was working with at the time, I was building actually a SQL Server ODS based on Data Vault principles, I'll say. Mm -hmm. It took six weeks for me to get access to the server. 
<laughs> so we did six weeks of design and analysis and prototyping. I was building data models in Oracle Data Modeler to try to be prepared, but it took six weeks before we were able to get the hardware. And here I'm in a meeting where they say, well, in 24 hours, we're going to be up and running. And, oh, by the way, you don't need to know how big your database is going to be because we allocate the storage dynamically. When you load data, then we grab the storage and you only pay for what you're using, where the very first question that had been on this gig from a VP, that's like day one, literally day one, probably first hour conversation, he immediately starts with, how big a server do I need to buy? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, it takes about six weeks to go through the procurement process here. So I need to know, what do we order? And I said, well, how much data do you expect to be in this data warehouse? He's like, I have no idea, but it's going to be lots. <laughs> it's going to be big, right? How many users? Oh, I don't know. I, I'm not really sure how many users we're going to have. So, I mean, he couldn't tell me what the capacity requirements were. And so when I hit this meetup and listening to the, the guys from Snowflake talk and go, wow, if I had known this six weeks ago, I could have said, don't worry about it. <laughs> We're going to get an account created today and we'll start working on it and we don't have to worry about it. And oh, by the way, you don't have to get your checkbook out today, right? You don't have to get out and write a big check for more licenses for SQL Server, for the hardware. And it turns out it was all hosted offshore on top of it. So you don't have to worry about any of that. We'll just go. We'll get some data from your source system. We'll get it moved over. We'll start playing with it. And, oh, you don't know how many users there are. That's okay. We, we can configure it to handle a couple of users. And then once we figure out how many there are, we can grow that, right? We can grow that dynamically. And you aren't going to get charged except when we're, we're using it. Mm-hmm. And so that just, like, again, blew me away. And then the second piece that blew me away was they claimed you can access JSON with SQL, right? You're going to be able to load JSON, Avro, XML, and all these semi-structured things into a table in this database and write SQL directly against it. And as like, well, you've got some tool that automatically splits that all out, builds the tables. Oh, no, 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 no. It goes into a data type, a new patented data type. That's a smart data type that reads the metadata on the document. It logs mm-hmm. it all in metadata. And you just write a SQL statement. And they said, if you know SQL, in two hours, we can have you querying semi-structured data with no ETL. And I was like, okay, show me. And they, they did it in the presentation. I was like, holy crap. I've been thinking at that point, you know, we're in 2015. Big data is a thing. Hadoop's a thing. Even Oracle's got their uh, big data machine that you, you tie in with the Oracle database, with an exadata, and you do sort of joins across it. And there's a little interface to manage all of that. And I'm looking at this. I was like, I could do this all in one place. <laughs> Right. So I can have my semi-structured and my structured data in one place. There's no silo anymore. I can join it with a single SQL statement. I can join attributes out of the semi-structured data with columns in my normal relational data that I pulled down from my ERP systems. And I said, just that blew me away. It's like, okay, I don't have to learn Java. I don't have to learn MapReduce. I don't have to figure out what the latency is going to be between my Hadoop box and my Oracle database or my SQL Server database. Oh, my God, they're in two different data centers. It's going to be really slow. All of these things just went away. And, I mean, that was, as they say, it's like I was a believer by the end of the presentation. 
I was tweeting about Snowflake, right? <laughs> uh, and going, wow. And then you went back to the my team the next day and said, if we'd only known about this six weeks ago, we're too far in because they've already made their investment and we're six weeks into a three month project. So we're not gonna be able to switch over to Snowflake. But then I'm immediately thinking, say, well, my next project, I don't care who they are, this is what we're doing. Yeah. That's a good story. And and I can so relate. I remember all of that trying to size and size it for three years. And we don't know all this and we're on a budget, but it has to support this. And that was a huge part of running all the math and just, just triple 10, 10 times going over it. I'm so glad that yeah. I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You and me both. Because the other thing is because I've, I'll say I've actively avoided being a DBA, mm-hmm. Mike my whole career. I mean, early on when I first started with Oracle, it's like you were the designer, you were the DBA, you were the developer, you were, I did the training, I developed the course materials, I did all of that, right? And it was mm-hmm. all sat on a laptop. Well, it wasn't mm-hmm. a laptop, then it was a desktop, mm-hmm. right? Might've been a LAN with a server. And so early on I did that, but as the uh, technology got more complex and you started having to have things like development DBAs and production DBAs and worry about backup and recovery and archive logging and all this other stuff, it's like, yeah, that's not exciting to me. Mm -hmm. Designing the solution is exciting to me. Figuring out what the right data structures are is exciting to me. And when I looked at this, I was like, wow, I can now take a data architect and build a solution and deliver it without having to spend, I'll say, hundreds of hours in classes or online or reading books or talking to world-renowned experts on how do you make this stuff work in order to get it to perform. And you don't have to tweak your design because the logical business design isn't going to perform well on that platform, right? Mm -hmm. You can actually do a logical semantic design and put it in and it works. It's like, wow, this is great. Yeah, as an architect, well, yeah, this is what I want to do. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Okay, I'm going to shift gears again because we could easily make the whole podcast about the great things the cloud has brought to us tech people. But let's get to the topic at hand, which is Snowflake itself. Now, obviously, the audience knows a little bit about it, but I like to start at 101 and build up anyway. So in a brief paragraph, can you describe Snowflake? Yeah, it's a cloud data platform. It was... I don't know if the word born in the cloud is right, but it was designed for the cloud specifically to take advantage of the features of the cloud, like the elasticity and the dynamic nature and the ability to turn things on and off. So our founders invented a new architecture. They call it the multi-cluster shared data architecture. It's the first new database architecture, if you will, in 30 years Mm -hmm. from an academic perspective, as well as an engineering and a technical perspective. And that gives us this separation of compute from storage, which we hear a lot about now, that allows you to have all your data in one place, but access it with multiple independent compute nodes. And that's, that's really, I'll say, the, the secret of our success is this architecture where I can spin up any number of compute clusters to address the same data. And that eliminates the contention that we've had in the legacy world, right? You've got a box that's got 16 CPUs. Mm -hmm. If I launch a Cartesian join across a massive star schema, well, nobody else can do anything, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to take all that compute. You know, it's going to take advantage of the uh, the parallelism, perhaps. If it's an MP machine, certainly it's going to do that. Even with Oracle, the parallel options in Oracle, it's going to take all that compute. Well, you can't do anything else. By having these independent 
compute nodes, we can have a set of compute that is used for queries and a different set of compute that say used for ETL, mm. which of course solved one of the other big problems we've had in data warehousing and really all the data analytics spaces is how do we load data while people are trying to query data? Mm -hmm. Right, because those two are fighting each other. Mm -hmm. And so this architecture has allowed us to eliminate that contention completely. And through, you know, asset compliance and transaction consistency, all the things that you need in a real database, Snowflake has those so that you still, you can be loading data and querying data at the same time and you get a read consistent views. So once the query executes, it just, it sees a stable state. Meanwhile, you're loading data using another set of compute and there's no interference between those. And that's just, that's the game changer right there, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, that combined with the variant data type that I was talking about earlier that allows us to store the semi-structured data, mm -hmm. uh, allows people to go way beyond what we typically thought of as data warehousing, which is why we now, we refer to ourselves as a cloud data platform because you can do data lake type things and data warehouse type things and analytics and data science all within a single platform. So you actually, we have a single source of truth that shared storage, the data goes in once, but you can access it from any number, you know, really a near infinite number of compute resources as you want to design them, turn them on, turn them off. You can size them up. If you need things to go faster, you can take a two node cluster and just do an alter statement to resize it to a four or an eight or a 16 node. And then immediately that data gets redistributed across all those nodes automatically. Mm -hmm. And you get the faster performance and we get near linear scalability. So if you need to go twice as fast, you just double the size. And it's a great, it's a SQL statement, alter warehouse resize return, right? There's no redistributing the data. There's no reconfiguring it. This is infrastructure on demand, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, again, the, had a lot of examples of customers who said, yeah, normally this process runs for an hour mm -hmm. and we run it every Friday and there's some reports that people are running off of it, et cetera, et cetera. Well, then along comes the CEO suddenly says, hey, I've got a meeting at 10 a.m., mm -hmm. right? I know you normally get me this report by noon. I need it by 10 a.m. this morning. Yeah. And I had, had an architect actually tell me, well, she just went in, did alter warehouse resize, doubled the size of the compute, ran the process, and it finished in half the time, and they had time to spare to get the data to their CEO. And the beauty of it is because of the, the pricing model, it's a per second per node. So hmm. if it runs for two seconds on one node or one second on two nodes, it costs you exactly the same amount of money. Mm -hmm. So it's not that if you run a larger cluster, it costs you more money. If it's running in half the time, it costs you exactly the same. And now we can talk about the value of time, right? How much is it worth to you? What's the ROI of being able to run that process faster for the same price? Mm -hmm. One of the things I hear a lot of people is like, oh, well, I, I don't want to want to run a large warehouse on Snowflake because it's going to cost too much. Well, it's not going to cost too much if you're only using it for what you need it for, right? right. If you turn it on and just let it sit idle, okay, yes, it's gonna rack up some charges at a higher rate. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at a process that was running for a couple of hours or a couple of minutes, whatever it is, and you move it to this large warehouse and it runs it in half the time, and then you turn it off, well, it didn't cost you a bunch of money, it just saved you a bunch of time. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
again, that's the, uh, as the credit card commercial says, what's that worth? That's priceless, right? Yeah. To get that time back. Because now we've got the information we need, and now we have time to do the analysis. Mm-hmm. Right? Drive the business decisions that we're trying to drive. That's where this is just, it's such a game changer, and it does require people to think differently, though, yeah. about what they're doing. That's really interesting. Now, is it possible also to set some elasticity around the provisioning of nodes? Can you set boundaries and some sort of other parameters and and have Snowflake do it for you? Yes, there's a certain amount of that. Well, for one, we have auto suspend and auto resume. Mm -hmm. So you can, to avoid that, you know, out of control charge, as it were, Mm -hmm. where somebody turns on a large and just lets it run. Right. And really, the process ran in five minutes mm-hmm. and then they're paying for compute they're not using. So we have auto suspend and you can control that and say if the compute cluster is idle for X amount of seconds, minutes, hours, whatever your threshold is mm-hmm. based on what you think the workload pattern will be on that cluster, shut it off. Mm. And then auto resume is there so that then the next query that comes in, it starts right back up again. And, it, and it's in a matter of seconds. So it's not like, oh, well, yeah, the next query that came in an hour later, they waited 20 minutes for the cluster to come back on. Well, it, no, there's always a reserve of warm clusters, right? Okay. So that it just it just turns on. So it's, well, it's not pre-provisioned, but it's sitting within the Snowflake platform, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're not just going and grab, oh, you need a cluster? Okay, and then we go grab it from the pool, mm-hmm. right? We have our own pool. So it's already ready. So we're not competing with the rest of AWS or Azure or GCP to get the compute. We've got some pre-allocated. And that's how we're able to spin these things up very quickly. And then we have the multi-cluster warehouse, which allows us to do horizontal scaling automatically. Mm -hmm. So you can say you can go up to 10. So I've got this uh, cluster. We'll say call it a two-node cluster, which is a small. Say, well, this is running my dashboard. And... We do get periodic spikes on that where most days there might be 10 users hitting that dashboard, but end of the month, it's 100, 500, 1,000. Mm-hmm. So instead of having to know, hey, there's going to be a rush tomorrow, hey, DBA, go in and resize that thing, make it bigger. Mm-hmm. That actually may not act even help because it gives you more compute, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to process more concurrency. The better thing, because we're MPP, is to have more nodes in parallel. Mm-hmm. And so our multi-cluster warehouse allows you to configure that virtual cluster and say, if there starts to be queuing, spin up a parallel cluster mm. It's the same size. So I've got a small with two nodes. Oh, hey, I've got suddenly a backlog of queries and it's, you know, we're, we're getting some queuing, spin up another small and it automatically load balances it and we'll move mm. those over. And if the queuing continues, then it'll do another, and then another, and then another, up to the max. The max is 10. You know, some people will configure it five. I mean, that's how you can control is like, how far do you want to go to meet your SLA, right? And that comes with experience to a certain extent that you have to profile your patterns and figure out, you know, what's the best. But the good news is, even though you've configured it to, say, potentially spin up to 10, you don't pay for any of that until they turn on. Mm. And then you're only paying for it when they're on. And so imagine it's, you've got a, suddenly a thousand queries come in and it spins all the way out to 10. As soon as the queuing subsides and the queries are finishing, it'll turn off number 10. Then it'll turn off number nine. 
and so on, all the way back down till you just have your original one. So it's totally automatic. So this is, I, I call it set it and forget it, right? Mm -hmm. So the classic Black Friday. Okay, we know that on Black Friday, these things happen and these queries come in and these reports get run and these users are hitting, okay, well, let's go configure a couple of multi-cluster warehouses dedicated to those particular reports, which are run on a regular basis, and we set it to 10. And then Thanksgiving evening, the DBA is not getting paged because the system's going down, right? Because right. suddenly it's flooded. It just automatically spins up and spins down, and yeah, you can enjoy your long holiday weekend, even though the system is actually getting hammered, but it's mm -hmm. automatically scaling for you. And that's just, I mean, Again, you talked about the B-level tasks. I think, you know, the mundane tasks that DBAs typically had to do, things like the pager going off on Thanksgiving mm -hmm. evening, yep. that holy cow, we got to we got to reset something on the system for uh, Black Friday or Cyber Monday, and they're working through the weekend to do all that. Well, we don't have to do that now, mm -hmm. right? The DBAs can have a life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've had many holidays ruined. Actually, that, so that brings me to something else I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you know, a lot of DBAs to this day, I was just reading a newsletter. I'm not going to name it. I read somewhere, maybe it was on Medium, I forget, but it was someone where someone was opining that, well, is the cloud really a good thing for us? Does it actually save us any money and sort of thing? And there was a bit of, a, I think, underlying fear. And, and I'm, as I'm out in the market, as you are, no doubt you encounter fears. Am I going to lose my job? I don't have to do backups anymore, all this sort of thing. I think there's a lot of fear uh, and still in many IT workers. But what I'm hearing is that there's significant amount of work. It's just different work. And it's actually smarter, more analytical thinking work rather than mundane, did the backup run and log checks and things like that. But why don't we just jump into, could you describe some of the typical tasks, administrative tasks there are for the DBA that whose organization has adopted or is adopting Snowflake? Sure. The key one still remains security. Mm -hmm. You have role-based access control. And so that still remains something that's very important is what's that role hierarchy look like? Mm -hmm. Who has access to what? So it's from a governance perspective. And this is something we do hear from our customers a lot, that that's one of the things they love about the platform is that they get all their data in one place and put together the security hierarchy so that they know who has access to what and that they're controlling it appropriately. So that's the big one, right? That's the big one for something that you, I will say, would have thought of typically as a DBA sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's the big one is getting the security in place. Standard things are still there, of course. Somebody still has to build the tables mm -hmm. and load the data. So is that your DBA or you know, we now are calling them data engineers? Yeah. Right? So you've got a data architect who might design it. You've got a data engineer that's dealing with the pipeline, what we might have referred to before as ETL or ELT. Mm -hmm. We tend to talk about data pipelines because everybody's moving towards more near real time rather than just strictly batch. And the ability to have dedicated compute for that pipeline allows us to now not have to do everything in batch in order to avoid the contention, right? Now we can think about refreshing the data on a much more regular basis or just streaming it in mm -hmm. as it becomes available and having the data be more current. So uh, DBA types, think of them as architects now, right? Mm -hmm. They need to look at things like that as, you know, what data do we need to bring in? When should it come in? What are the use cases? What is the business need? And how? what's the timing of that need? You know, should we get them data more frequently? Or is once a day good enough, say, like for the finance department? They might only want it once a day. They don't mm -hmm. want to be watching changing numbers. Mm -hmm. So they might still want a batch process on theirs. 
where marketing might be running a campaign and they want to get near real time yep. feeds off of uh, web logs. So you've got that. And then, of course, there's the sizing and configuration of the compute clusters. Does this process need a small, an extra small, a medium, a large, or 4XL? What is the right interval for auto suspend? What's the profile throughout the day of the processes that are going to run against this particular set of compute? And then, of course, as I just said, do we use multi-cluster warehouse? Where do we use that? How far do we go? How many nodes do we want it to spin out to, et cetera, all of that. Then you would ask the question about you know, controls. And so we have warehouse monitors. Mm-hmm. And so you can set up warehouse monitors on each of these virtual compute clusters, and you can put thresholds on it for credits. So you allocate a certain number of credits per month. And per day, there's lots of variants of what you can do there. And you can set alerts at different levels, 70%, 80%, 90%. What happens? Do we send an alert? There's the uh, the kill command. I call it terminate with extreme prejudice. Yeah, um, I remember. That, you know, if, they, if they hit that level, it just shuts the compute off and says, okay, you've used all your credits. You're at 105%. Whatever's running, sorry. And they just cut it off. And that that's one way of preventing things like runaway queries. Mm. Right. People get concerned about that. And so those are the kinds of things that, you know, someone who was, I'll say, in a more typical DBA role might be dealing with. The other one is where uh, we have uh, the zero copy cloning feature in some organizations. If they're regulated, we'll we'll use that, create uh, clones on a regular basis for their backups. Hmm. Right. So uh, month end processing. So you take a month end snapshot of the database, label it revoke everyone's access except for an administrator, mm-hmm. and it's there. And it's basically you now have a hot backup right online. So if somebody needs to say, hey, I need to take a look at the numbers from three months ago, then they just grant the auditor access to that database and those reports, and they go back in and look at it. So that's another thing that's, in my mind, more in the DBA realm is configuring all that. But again, it's an architecture decision is mm-hmm. how are we going to handle things like audit? How much history are we going to keep? The beauty, of course, is that it's compressed and we get like three to five X compression in Snowflake. And you're getting charged per terabyte per month and it's per terabyte compressed. Mm -hmm. So one terabyte that you're being charged for might actually contain five terabytes of data. Okay. Where if you were to go load it raw, say, into blob storage without some manual compression going on, you're going to pay for five terabytes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where Snowflake, it's it's being compressed automatically for you. Okay, that was my next question. So, and yeah. and I, I assume that Snowflake knows to compress, monitor. Does actually let me back up. Does Snowflake monitor the amount of compression and adjust it for optimum performance, or is that a, a slider we can control, or how does that work? Yeah, there is no control because the optimization, everything is managed by metadata. As you're starting to infer, there is like yeah, so we know it and. It does columnar compression, right? So it saves a lot of space that way if you got a lot of redundant data. Mm-hmm. But that's all recorded in metadata. And so the metadata knows where all that data is. And so mm-hmm. you you run a query pulling back a particular column, particular set of data. It doesn't have to scan through 5 million rows if half of them are the same value. Mm-hmm. It really has to go to one. And it knows right. that, okay, that value is represented on these 2 million rows. And so if the query is looking at any of those 2 million rows, okay, we just pull that out. And so we automatically do the compression. Unlike a lot of the other systems, we 
automatically gather statistics as you load the data in, mm -hmm. we're collecting the stats, right? It's like, I, I saw that, it's like, well, duh. Yeah, why do we have to run gather stats? Yeah. Well, because nobody ever wrote a system that thought to scan the metadata on the data as it was being loaded in, right? So mm -hmm. it's keeping track of it real time, and that's part of the optimization secret, right? Is that as new data is being streamed in and loaded, the statistics are constantly being updated. So the next query you run knows what that distribution pattern is already. So it you know has eliminated all this. We don't we don't have to create partitions. We don't have to create distribution keys. We don't create indexes. That's all managed automatically, and that's you know that's the promise of the automation mm -hmm. and machine learning, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that the information's there, and if a human being can analyze the data and go, oh well, we should do this to make this work better based on this information, well. A lot of that stuff, those of us who dealt with uh, rule-based optimizers as well as cost-based optimizers, well, we know there's there's rules, right? Mm -hmm. And so what's machine learning? And AI is applying those rules to the data. Yep. You know, it doesn't really require a human being at this point. We've figured out what this stuff is. And our founders were experts and helped architect the parallel execution engine in Oracle. And so they knew all these things, right? And so they were able to take all that learning and say, okay, how do we apply this in a new way? How do we apply this in a smart way? How do we eliminate all of these mundane tasks that DBAs have been having to do for years and truly make this smart, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Take that out of their hands so that they can concentrate on more value-added activities like figuring out what data should we get next? You know, what's the business need? Let's find that data. Let's figure out how to structure that data. Let's figure out how to get that data in and make it available to more and more users. So for the DBA and for and in, in the case of performance tuning, other than throwing more compute resources at the warehouse, what are some of the other performance tuning tasks that are made available to the IT staff? There's not a lot. I mean, it's the the resizing is the biggest one. We do for very large workloads under the covers, we have these things called micro partitions mm -hmm. and we automatically cluster the data as the data is being loaded. And there are certain cases where the, I'll say the natural clustering of the data is orthogonal to the queries coming in. So we do have one lever at this point where you can declare a cluster key. Mm. Now, of course, there's pros and cons to that, just like there was with indexing, is that if you've got a you know, mission critical query that the, the predicates and that you're trying to run just are against columns that aren't really the natural order of the data. Okay, well, you create a cluster key with, you put those columns in the front, and now that query is gonna work a lot better because now it'll reorganize the data and reorganize the micro partitions because what we use is something called partition pruning. So very similar to what you've known partitions, but at a much smaller level, much mm -hmm. more granular level. And so the partitions will then get organized along that new cluster key. So that query now works great, but some of the other queries that come in ad hoc queries may not work so well, right? right. Um, and so that's one of the little balancing acts that we have to do in that area. And we now have, it's a serverless function that keeps those clusters up to date, right? So that's our automatic clustering service. So once you've defined it, you don't have to keep going in and altering the table and redoing the clusters as new data sets are coming in. It's gonna manage that automatically for you again. So, you know, the set it, forget it, it works. Our materialized view feature, which is, is quite different from what 
you know, it was in the Oracle world. The materialized views give you two possible uses for materialized views in Snowflake. One is aggregations. So you've got trillions of rows, but you've got dashboards that are looking at the various summaries, might need to do drill down at some point, but might not, right? So you can run a materialized view to pre-aggregate it. The other is to deal with this sort of orthogonal query and cluster key, is you can take and create a materialized view on a table, same level of grain, but declare a different cluster key. Okay. Right? So then when that query comes in that says, we're looking at X and Y, well, the cluster key is set for X and Y, it uses the materialized view instead of going against the base table. And then when the, you know, the more standard queries come in that don't need the cluster key, then they still have that data. And again, we have a, an automatic service that runs in the background that keeps the materialized view in sync with the base table. So as you load new data into the table, you don't have to like alter materialized view refresh, right? Hmm. It's gonna keep it in sync for you automatically. Hmm. That's pretty cool. So again, planning that sort of stuff, that's in the, you know, the architect, I'll say DBA sort of realm, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, it's very, very interesting. That is cool. Man, I, I just have so many questions. So let's uh, switch gears a little bit. I, I don't feel like I'm doing anything justice here. Let's talk a little bit about data ingestion. I'm still married to the ETL term, but how does data ingestion, how do I get my data into Snowflake? There's a couple different mechanisms. You can use traditional ETL tool like Informatica, Talend, even Oracle Data Integrator. Someone actually wrote a knowledge module for that to load data into Snowflake. It's via an ODBC connector. Mm-hmm. But you can also use things like Kafka, Kinesis, Firehose, a number of other tools of that nature. And then we have a service called Snowpipe. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, the difference, and this took me a while to get in my head, is the way the cloud works is the data all ends up in files in blob storage. Okay. So there's no, like we don't connect to a database and pull the data directly from the source database into Snowflake, it's going through a pipeline, right? And that pipeline gets the data out of the source database, drops it into files in blob storage, and then it gets picked up. And so there's a copy command, which was the way we started is using a copy command. So even like Informatica, their connector would pull the data from the source database, drop it into appropriately sized files, and then execute a copy command to move it into Snowflake. The Confluent connector does something similar as well. We have a Confluent Kafka connector for Snowflake now that works really well. Then we have Snowpipe. And so Snowpipe, you create a pipe for a particular file to a particular table. And as files are dropped into that blob storage bucket, Snowpipe is a serverless app. It wakes up and goes, oh, hey, new data. Grabs that, pushes it into Snowflake. And that's fundamentally how they all work one way or another. I mean, it's through a a REST API under the covers. There is a REST API for Snowpipe, so you can actually write an application to manage all of that. Or you can do it with a Python, you know, people were using Python to write the copy commands and automate that. So that's fundamentally how it works. And then we use very small files because, again, we're an MPP machine. So even an extra small with a single node has eight threads. Mm. And so we don't recommend like taking a terabyte of data and dropping it into a single file. You break it up into a lot of smaller files, then they can be all loaded much more rapidly. Right. Again, that's a little bit different. That's something I had to get my head wrapped around as well. That's the MPP world. Right that you, you want to do that. If you're going to use all of those threads, then 
you want to have a bunch of smaller files so that it, it can go in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you can, all of the connectors, all the, I'll say, traditional ETL and ELT tools would that have connectors for Snowflake, which most of them do now, all handle all of that seamlessly and invisibly. You, you don't have to know anything yourself. You just pick the Snowflake, target a Snowflake, you put in your username and password and specify, in most cases, a uh, compute node, because they're all named. So we make these in the, the independent compute clusters, we call them virtual warehouses. You put that in and then the tool manages all the rest of it. And how does it differ for streaming data? Basically, the thing is you can do batch or, well, streaming, we'll call it near real time, right? It's called continuous ingestion, mm -hmm. right? It's, and nothing, nothing's actually real time, but, yes. but you do the same thing. So whether it's Kafka or Kinesis, dropping the data into a blob storage bucket and either using the REST API for Snowpipe or just using the auto ingest feature of Snowpipe, picking it up, moving it in. Or again, some people write their own Python routines that'll just that'll recurse through the buckets. And when they see new files, looking at the timestamps, we'll do a copy command to push it in as well. Okay, cool. And what about monitoring, both job monitoring, but I guess also system monitoring? I, I guess we don't you know, have to monitor if it's there or not anymore, or if there's blocking locks or things right. like that. But presumably somebody's manager or somebody's manager's manager is gonna want to make sure their staff make sure that things are working optimally how does monitoring work for the IT professional who has Snowflake? Well, I, I mentioned already the warehouse monitors. Mm -hmm. And so that's how you keep track of and control the amount of credits being used on compute. In the UI, we have monitoring pages where you can go look at the storage that's accumulating the ebbs and flows of the storage as well as the compute. There's a history tab in the UI. You can look at all the queries that you as an administrator are allowed to see. You can see how long they ran, how long they were took to compile. And so you can look at those and you can look for long running queries, mm -hmm. things like that, like you typically would. There is a query profiler. So you can go look and see how it worked, how many micro partitions did it access, where was the bulk of the work being done. And there's still an art to writing good SQL. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you can have a crummy design and write a crummy query and mm -hmm. it'll run, but there might be some opportunities to improve that a little bit. Then we also have a Snowflake database that you get as part of your account. And it's actually, you look in there and it says Snowflake and it's a database. Mm -hmm. And what it is, is a view, we call it the account usage share. Pre-built a data mart on top of our information schema that exposes a lot of these metrics that you're going to want. Mm -hmm. uh, and several people have done blog posts and produced, I'll say, canned dashboards using Click and mm -hmm. uh, Tableau and a couple of, I think, Power BI. So people build those things. Some people publish them out there in the, the blogosphere to allow you to more easily do that monitoring. And of course, you can set up your own alerting and reports and things like that. So it's doing analytics on your analytics engine. Because right? mm -hmm. it's all accessible. So we have a, an information schema that exposes all this, you know, what your users, how long they're running, how many credits they're using, what tables they're hitting, all of that's available. Okay, that's cool. I, I didn't know that that was there. I mean, I, that was one of the things I loved, especially early in my DBA career, was interrogating, especially the undocumented system views and reverse engineering. You know, I would monitor how uh, Enterprise Manager and SQL Server would interact 
with the database and the engine, I'd trace it, and then I would go through the queries and, and really learn. That's how I learned right. the underlying. Yeah. And there's not a bunch of undocumented views in this case. It's all actually the metadata is exposed. Mm-hmm. And because this is delivered as a service, there's a lot of things that you, you don't have visibility to, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're managing all of that as a company. So mm-hmm. Snowflake manages all that stuff for you. But the stuff that you do care about, all the things you mentioned, you know, who's, how many queries are running, how long are they running, which department is using more credits than other departments. Yeah, yeah. all of that sort of one. thing. Yeah, that's yeah, one of the that's first that. reports. <laughs> right, and, and that's where, again, one of the DBA roles there is figuring out the virtual warehouses, the compute clusters, and a naming standard for that. Are you going to do it by department? Are you going to do it by workload? You can do it by workload and department. How are you going to divvy that up? And really, that gets to the reportability. The more granular you are, and because these configuring and creating these virtual compute clusters doesn't cost you anything, mm-hmm. there's not a disincentive to say having a hundred of them, right? Right. As long as you, again, I'm always been a big standards guy. Good naming standards, so mm-hmm. that the next guy that comes in and looks at this, something makes sense. It's not like virtual warehouse one through three hundred. Right, that there's some intelligence to the naming, make it a little easier to run reports and do group buys and things like that. So thinking out about, you know, you're going to want to do the monitoring here. Many of our customers now have build back models internally in their organization, where before it was IT got a big budget, they went off and bought a big piece of hardware, and when people said, hey, my report's not running, well, sorry, we we can't help you because we're limited on what we have, and it's going to be another two years before we buy more hardware. Well, now you get a new department says hey, I want some of that, right? You're talking about data democratization. My team needs access to that data. We've never been able to get access to the data. Okay, we'll create an environment for you in Snowflake. We'll be able to monitor it. What's your budget? And now we can feed back to the departments, even if you're not going to charge them back and say, hey, last month you used this many credits and you had this many hours of querying going on and you guys loaded this much data. All of those things are trackable and much more transparency, visibility, which, of course, is great for uh, compliance, mm-hmm. right? regulatory compliance, audit, all of that sort of thing. Okay, yeah, that is cool. What about documenting the data for our users to access? Are there any built-in mechanisms or what are people typically doing to publish the metadata so that the users know what to query and where to find it? Usually, they're using more of a, a data catalog tool, so like Alation or Calibra. Wearscape is another one that does some automated ingestion in pipelines and produces a whole bunch of online documentation for you based on where all that data moved. Otherwise, it's the you know the information schema. So you can build your own, right? If it's just you want a data dictionary, well, mm-hmm. that's all available. That Snowflake database in particular mm-hmm. has that. We have show tables commands, show columns commands, all of those sorts of things. So you could build your own just to say, okay, here's all the tables and Here's when it was last updated and how many rows are in the table. So you could build your own that way. If you're talking about more of a semantic model, then that's where people tend to go to something more like a call a traditional data cataloging tool, data governance tool. Hmm. But all of those have native connectors to Snowflake so they can read the metadata in Snowflake. And then you can layer on top of it the business metadata. Mm-hmm. Okay. It makes sense. One of the things that I noticed as I was uh, getting ready for the podcast is that Snowflake I know you're on all of the major public clouds, but uh, Snowflake had by far and away many more regions available on AWS versus the other guys. Is there a preference towards AWS or, or why is that? Well, we started off initially on AWS 
Snowflake was designed to be cloud agnostic. And so we have a cloud services layer wrapped around it that talks to the, if you will, the API of the underlying cloud infrastructure provider. AWS is where we started because that's where the demand was. Then we went to Azure and then we went to GCP. And it's, it's based on we're a customer-driven company. So it's based on customer demand. You know, there's always somebody that wants to be on a different cloud, right? But well, there's got to be enough demand to warrant it because it's not inexpensive, of course, to spin up a Snowflake instance in a region. The other aspect of this is the cloud provider region also has to have the right resources available to support our customers. So I talked about having the pool of compute so that when you do auto resume, it's there, right? You're not waiting 20 minutes to pull something away, waiting for somebody else to finish somewhere else in the space, and then you, you get something available. So that's been part of it as well, but it's been very thoughtful based on customer demand primarily. AWS was where we started because there was a region that had the capabilities to support the throughput that we needed, the compute power that we needed, and our goal is always to have the customer experience be the same, mm -hmm. regardless of cloud provider, so we had to be able to ensure that that was the case, which meant for us to expand into Azure. The Azure infrastructure had to be able to support us at the level that the performance was going to be comparable to what we already were getting on AWS. And GCP is likewise. It's the same thing. And so it's just that we're newer on Azure and GCP. And over time, what you will see is that's going to grow. Right? Mm -hmm. I would expect we will have similar number of regions on all of those. But again, it is driven by completely by customer demand. If there's no demand for a particular cloud in a particular region, well, then we're not going to spend the capital to build that out. We're not going to do build it and they will come, right? right? We work as an agile engineering organization. Mm -hmm. And so we work off of uh, backlog and priorities driven by our customers. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So let's talk a little bit more about Snowflake's success, if you will. What are some real world kind of sizes? And I'm not really looking for edge cases where that one company has that, you know, four petabyte database, but like what are some real world significant sized installations for both size, but also concurrent users by the customer base? Yeah, sure. So as an organization right now, uh, on a daily basis, we have over 469 million queries a day running across all of the Snowflake installations. So to give you a little sense there, the largest table that I've seen is 40 trillion rows. Wow. And it's over half a petabyte compressed of wow. data. And it's a fact table. And it's a fact table, it's like eight columns. When I joined the company in 2015, there was 23 trillion rows in it. And when the uh, customer success engineer told me that, I was like, no way, <laughs> what do you mean 20? 23 trillion, are you sure trillion? And he showed me the metadata and it's like, wow. And they're, they're using it. And he's like, yeah, every week they're running aggregates against it. They're running aggregates against a 40 trillion row table. Wow. With no tuning. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is like mind blown, right? Yeah. And like I said, it's gone from 23 trillion to 40 trillion rows in the four plus years that I've been at Snowflake. And there I found out that every, I think it's every Friday, they said, they're loading 150 terabytes of JSON data into that table wow. every week. Yeah, it's crazy. And so we've got that one. So that one's out there. 
you've got one customer that just, this blew me away. This is a new one. We got a, a, a newer customer that actually has 16 million tables in Snowflake. Wow. I mean, you couldn't even think about doing that in any other database, right? No. And this no. is the extreme elasticity of the product is they didn't put in artificial barriers to say, well, you can only have X number of tables and X number of columns and X number of schemas or X number of databases because you're limited by the ability of the data dictionary to handle those things. Mm -hmm. So again, when the advantage of being built from scratch is like, well, why do we need that? Right. We just need to make sure that our data dictionary can handle it. And okay, we did. Right. Problem solved is like, why put a limit on it? Well, we don't want to have a limit. Okay, how do you build something so you don't have to have a limit? Well, you need that scalability that you can get in the cloud. But that's the biggest one. And that just popped up within the last couple of months. But prior to that, we actually have another customer that's got 2.2 million tables. I've got seven customers with over 200,000 tables hmm. in their Snowflake instance. So that's, uh, you know, you said it's not a corner case. I mean, the 16 million is, wow, that's way out there. But you start thinking about this is what data lakes were supposed to be. Right. Right that you could just load all of your data in. And that's what I find these guys are doing is in the data warehousing world, we would have called it a persistent staging area. Mm -hmm. In data science, they might call it the raw zone, right? Mm -hmm. It's all the raw data being piped in from all the source systems and then you know whatever they're doing with it from there. The largest amount of data that we have is 29 petabytes and that's compressed. Mm -hmm. So even if you assume a 3X compression, you're looking at 90 petabytes of data. Wow. Yeah, that's the biggest one. But we have, I know a couple others that just recently migrated from an on-prem system that have two, three, four petabytes. So we've definitely, we've got a fair number now, you know, certainly several dozen at least that are in the petabyte range. Mm -hmm. And that's growing as people are discovering, you know, the company's got 16 million tables. Well, they've discovered they can load a lot more data than they ever thought they could. Right. The one with the 30 petabytes, at one point, I think they were using Snowpipe, and they were loading, they had 15 years of web logs from their website that they wanted to load in to do analysis on because they weren't able to do that in their on-prem system. Right. They were loading, to get caught up, they were loading a trillion rows a day. Wow. A trillion rows a day. And somebody's like, well, why would you do that? It's like, because there's value in that data. And they're looking at uh, customer 360. Mm-hmm. Well, they've got the web logs for 15 years for all of their customers. Mm -hmm. This is going to make a difference to their analytics. Mm -hmm. And I also say, you know, obviously they have figured there's some value in it or they wouldn't spend the compute to do that. Mm -hmm. They're getting the ROI, mm -hmm. right? You don't load a trillion rows a day if you're not convinced that that data is valuable, right? Right. Now they're up doing about a trillion a month, I guess, from my understanding. The largest number of users I've found so far is 11,000. Hmm. And the high watermark had been about 5,900, where they had almost 6,000 people in in a given day. And that mark rate went up a week ago, two weeks ago, to 9,000, hmm. where they actually had 9,000 users actually accessing the system on, on a particular day. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like, it just blows your mind. You know, where we come back from, it's like you would have just cringed if somebody said, well, yeah, we're going to need, you know, maybe six, seven, 9,000 users to run queries tomorrow. <laughs> it was just like, um, I think I've got vacation coming. 
<laughs> and I'm going to be disconnected. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to a remote island where there's no Wi-Fi, there's no cell service. Oh, man. Know? That's We're going to be in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on a boat. Yeah, no, that's some capability. So for the IT professional or DBA who wants to learn Snowflake, how do you recommend he or she get started? Well, we have a great online community. So it's uh, community.snowflake.com. Mm -hmm. We just reopened up some forums there. There's a lot of online learning available there. We have uh, Snowflake University, which is free. So that's your kind of your introductory classes. We do have an education team which offers Snowflake training. So we now have a Snow Pro certification that you can go for. Mm -hmm. And all those classes have, of course, gone virtual with the pandemic here. And if you follow me on Twitter, it's just Kent Graziano on Twitter. I'm tweeting links to this stuff all the time. So you'll, you'll be able to find most of that. You can just go to our website and you'll find all of it as well. You can just do a search. But yes, Snowflake University, great place to start. We have a YouTube channel. There's literally hundreds of videos. There's a, a new one, Snowflake in Eight Minutes, that I've been tweeting a fair amount recently to get the, hey, what's the big story here? Our documentation, docs.snowflake.com, is completely open. It has tutorials in the doc. You can get a free trial, a 30-day trial of Snowflake that you mm -hmm. just go and if you go to our website, there's try it for free buttons all over the place. And you just sign up for that. And I would encourage anyone who's going to try to do that is take a look at the docs first, go through maybe, take a look, a couple of the Snowflake University sessions, get a feel for the product before you sign up because it is 30 days and it gets you $400 US credits hmm. to run, which if you use the system properly, the odds are you're not going to run through that $400 in 30 days unless you do something like turn auto suspend off. Do not do that, right? <laughs> Whatever you do, make sure auto suspend is on. And that's the default, but just double check yourself. Don't go, oh, I don't think I need that. No, you do need that. Trust me. You need that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that so sounds lot, good. Lots, so lots of opportunities. And so we do webinars all the time, mm -hmm. all kinds of different webinars, customer focused, you know, a lot of customer success stories and talking about what they've done, what they've been able to do with Snowflake. So there's lots of opportunities out there. In two weeks, we have a thing called Build that's going to happen. And if you go to our website, you'll see that and you can sign up. And that's a, a, a two-day virtual event designed for app builders. People are going to want to build analytic applications on top of Snowflake. Sounds and that's good. another good opportunity as well. Sounds good. I'm actually signed up for that one. Oh, there you go. <laughs> that, that looks good. Okay, that sounds like a great bunch of resources to get anyone started. So we're kind of drawing to a close here, Kent. We have something that we put our guests through called the lightning round. And that's where we ask you a couple key questions about your career and yourself that helps the audience kind of get to know you better. That's uh, kind of the first thing that comes to mind. Are you up for it? Sure. Let's do it. All right. What project are you most proud of? Building the data warehouse system at Denver Public Schools. Hmm because oh. I provided data to the principals and the superintendent and helped them drive better outcomes for all the students uh, in that school system. That's a good one. Can you name a book that's made the most or a significant impact on your career? Yeah, The Goal, G-O-A-L, The Goal. It's about the application of the theory of constraints, and it's what introduced me to sort of lean thinking and agile thinking and allowed me to develop my approach to doing agile data warehousing. 
It's a novelization of the theory of constraints, really, about a, a manager in a factory and how he had to went about solving uh, some problems to keep that factory open. Mm -hmm. I read that book. I also endorse it. It is a great book. Standing or sitting desk? Sitting. Mm -hmm. Same. Laptop or desktop? Laptop. And is that laptop a Mac or a PC? My work laptop is a Mac. My home laptop is a PC. Okay. And are you an iPhone or Android person? Android. Yeah, me too. What is the best tool or app that you use on a daily basis? Slack. <laughs> okay. I should add that you like. <laughs> I actually like it. Okay. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> I do like it. And last but not least, uh, Kent, if people want to reach out, find more about you, we know you have your blog you mentioned earlier, but where else can people find you on Twitter and LinkedIn and where? Yeah, so on, on Twitter, it's uh, Kent Graziano, mm -hmm. just you know, no hyphens or underscores. LinkedIn, same thing. I have a lot of material out on SlideShare. Hmm. So you can search for uh, K Graziano on SlideShare and a lot of my past talks. The slides are all out there. And then my, you know, my blog, kentgraziano.com. That one's not as active as it has been in the past, but there's a lot of good material on there. I do a lot more blogging and events with, with Snowflake, obviously, these days. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, there's lots of, lots of places you can track me down. Good. And, folks, those links will be in the show notes at pythian.com. Check the blog. Go to the show notes. They'll be up uh, same time as the podcast, so you can get all the links that Kent mentioned, as well as connect with him and ask him questions. Well, that's all the time we had today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is helping others to find us, and you can do that by telling a friend or writing a short, honest review on your podcast platform of choice. We also love your feedback. You can email me at datascape at gmail.com or presley at pythian.com. And how about this? What did I forget to ask Kent? Do you want Kent to come back to the show? And what would you like him to discuss? Shoot me an email. I respond and read to everyone I get. Love to have him back, but let's see what you think. Thanks all and have a great day in the datascape. Navigating the datascape.